So it says in John chapter 6, beginning of verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say unto you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. You know, this morning here in a, in a little bit, toward the end of our service, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And the church has been celebrating the Lord's Supper for some 2,000 years. Sometimes we refer to it as the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, Communion. And the term that the Catholic Church has given to it is the Eucharist. And there's been some understanding and misunderstanding down through the years that's grown around the Lord's Supper. And what exactly is it? If you look in Scripture, it's pretty clear that God gave it to us as a memorial. And Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. The elements that we're going to partake of are the bread and the juice. And Jesus had said that the bread was his body and the juice was his blood. These things were symbols of what he was about to do. Remember, he had not gone to the cross yet. He was about to go to the cross. And as he sits down for the last time with his disciples, he gives them this beautiful feast and then tells them that as often as they do this, to do this in remembrance of him. Well, Christian churches have been doing this then for some 2,000 years down through the ages to commemorate what Christ has done for us. In that 2,000 years, there's been some confusion that has surrounded the feast exactly as to the nature of the presence of Christ and the interpretation of these passages. What we teach in our church is that it is a memorial. It is a participation in the death and the resurrection of Christ. But it is done so in a way that it is a memorial where we stop and we reflect and we remember back on what He has done for us just as He told us to do. And as we do that, we look forward to His return and we look amongst ourselves in fellowship as we share in this together and recognize that the value of it to us comes through faith and it is actually by strengthening our faith and encouraging us in our walk of faith and our belief in Christ. Well, as we come to this passage this morning, we have some different views that have crept in. The Catholic Church began to develop this idea that they call transubstantiation. That when the priest blesses the elements, that they literally change. That the bread ceases to be bread and is literally the body of Christ. The wine ceases to be wine and literally becomes the blood of Christ. Then when you have the Reformation in Luther who was a former Catholic, had his reformation and came out from the Catholic Church, which he didn't really want to come out. He actually wanted to reform it and say, you know what, we've gotten off Scripture quite a ways. We ought to go back to Scripture. We wanted to reform the church. But the church and its power structure at that time did not have any interest in reforming. And so we ended up with Lutheranism. And Luther came up with the idea of consubstantiation. Consubstantiation is that the elements actually stay bread and wine, but... Christ is present in, with, and under, con, with. Kind of like when you go buy chili, right? You can buy chili con carne, with meat or without meat, right? No, that's what Lutheran is, consubstantiation. They don't, not trans, trans, not changing the substance, but 
with the substance. And so Luther kind of brought it back a little ways, but not all the way in his understanding. I actually find some members within the Catholic Church that don't recognize this as actually teaching about the Lord's Supper and others that do. But there is some confusion. I think at times people look at this passage where Jesus gets very graphic with saying, my body is true food and my blood is true drink. And so it can lend to some confusion. I remember I was talking to somebody one time. and He's like, aren't we supposed to take the Bible literally? And we'll get into that in a few moments. Then I remember having another discussion with another individual. In fact, we'd just gone through and celebrated the Lord's Supper and we talked about what it was and what it wasn't. Afterwards, she came up and talked to me and she says, why don't you want Jesus to actually be in the elements? Why don't you want those elements to actually turn into the body and blood of Christ? It seems like you would want to participate in Jesus in a very physical way that way. And I said, it doesn't really matter (laughs) what I want. It's not about what I want. It's not about whether I think it's a neat idea or not a neat idea or whether I get some warm, fuzzy feeling about whether I think that those elements are literally becoming the body and blood of Christ. Actually, what it's about is do they become the body and blood of Christ? Because either they do or they don't. There is a reality here. There is a truth. It's whether they do or do not. That's what we got to get down to. Not whether I feel like they should or they shouldn't or whether I like the idea. And so that's what we're seeking to do here this morning. Now, the end goal of this thing and what I've labeled the the message for this morning is true disciples. Because in the midst of all of this discussion, there is a weeding out happening. In the end, you've got some people that have been called disciples, but they were not genuine in their faith. And we know that because they left. And so as we look at it here this morning, we're looking at true disciples because Christ ends up making some tough statements that they have a hard time with. In fact, they become offended with it and they end up turning their back on Christ and walking away. And then Jesus will turn to his disciples and say, are you going to go too? And they'll say, absolutely not. And so what we're seeing in the overall context, these true disciples. In order to get to that, we're going to wade through some of the things that Christ taught here. And specifically what we're looking at this morning is, what does this have to do with the Lord's Supper? And my premise that I want to put forth to you this morning is that John chapter 6 really doesn't have anything to do with the Lord's Supper. There's a lot of reasons that are not in this passage as well. Like, for example, just to mention one, there's a theological reason that Christ was once and for all sacrificed for our sin. The Bible tells us over and over and over that Christ was once and for all sacrificed for our sins. That He is our High Priest and that He offered Himself as a sacrifice for us. And through our faith in that once and for all sacrifice, we're saved. Well, the idea of transubstantiation, the idea of the Eucharist, is that the elements, when blessed by the priest, actually become the body and blood and a literal sacrifice is taking place all over again. And so every time that the Eucharist is observed, they see it as Christ again in another sacrifice for us. Now, they would not say it's exactly the same sacrifice as when He died on the cross, but yet another sacrifice. But yet, that concept is foreign to the New Testament. Christ's sacrifice on the cross was completely sufficient to pay for our sin and to give us an eternal life and acceptance before God. There remains no other sacrifice. That's why when you look through the New Testament, you don't find any more priests. The only priest is Christ. He's the high priest. You find pastors and elders when you look into church government. Pastors, elders, deacons. The priest is gone. In fact, the Bible goes so far as to say that we, all of us believers, are a nation of priests before God. We all have access to God. Why? Because of the high priest, Christ, and His 
sacrifice on the cross. So there's lots of theological reasons like that that would play into this as well that would also, if you're going to deal with the whole subject. But I want to kind of mainly stay just stuck to John. John chapter 6. And uh, what I want to look at is the reasons that John chapter 6 is not referring to communion. In other words, when we participate in the Lord's Supper here in a little bit, and we eat the bread, it's still going to be a piece of bread. When we drink the cup, it's just juice. The reasons that we find right within John chapter 6 that this is not the case is, uh, first of all, the priority of belief. If you look at the whole statement that Jesus is making there, all the teaching that goes on within John chapter 6, you find very clearly that the point that Jesus is making is that we got to believe. It's through faith in Christ that we receive eternal life. That is the point that he repeats over and over and over. Notice, first of all, in the passage that it is what they are encouraged to. Continually through the passage, they're pointed to, to believing. John chapter 6, verse 29 says, Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. Jesus had just told them, Don't work for the food that's perishing. Work for that which endures to eternal life. And they said, What is the work of God that gives us this eternal life? And Jesus says, The work of God is to believe in Him whom He has sent. So they said to Him, Then what sign do you do so that we may believe you? What work do you perform? And so they're getting the idea a little bit. They're, they're pretty thick, so they're not going to get it completely. But at least they're locked onto this idea of believing. Alright, then show us something that we can believe. Like he hadn't already. John chapter 6 verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. In John chapter 6 and verse 40, he says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So we're finding that repeatedly through the passage, and this isn't even all of them, there's more yet, he keeps encouraging them to do one thing. And what is that one thing? It's to believe. Now, it's interesting that when he gets to talking about his body, his flesh, and his blood, it's very similar to what he's talking about with believing. Because in verse 54, as we looked at last week, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Notice the similarities. Verse 40, Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up. Whoever feeds on my flesh, drinks my blood, has eternal life, and I will raise him up. You see, what is the point? All through the passage, he keeps saying, believe, 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 believe. When he gets to the point where he says, feed on my flesh, drink my blood, he's just finding another way to say believe. He's just using it as an analogy of believing. John chapter 6, verse 47, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. You see, when he uses two things simultaneously like this, one obviously represents the other. And so it has to be either that believing represents the eating or the eating represents the believing. And you know what? It's very clear which one it is because all through Scripture we're constantly told that if we believe in Jesus Christ, we'll have eternal life. In this instance... He uses the eating of his flesh and the drinking of his blood as a symbol of partaking in him to get life. Well, not only was it what they were encouraged to, but it's also what they were corrected about. He's not correcting them and say, look, you're not eating. He, he, he says, look, you're not believing. The eating represents the believing. In John chapter 6 and verse 36, he says, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. In verse 64, it says, but there are some of you who do not believe. Why? Because Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who would not believe. And then finally, on an encouraging note, when we get right toward the end of the passage in verses 68 and 69, when Jesus 
asked him, Are you going to go away too? To the disciples, Simon Peter answers him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And so the final good example of the apostles is that believing. And so you see all through the passage, you see this dominant priority of believing. To eat, to drink, means to believe. Well, secondly, another reason that this is not referring to communion is because of the use of allegorical language. We talked about a few moments ago with that friend of mine before that had trouble with a literal understanding of Scripture. Remember that? He said, well, don't we take the Bible literally? So shouldn't we take this literally? Um, yes, we do take the Bible literally. Or, or probably a better word for how we interpret the Bible is normally. Normally. Because you see, when people talk about interpreting the Bible literally... They don't mean that the Bible doesn't use any figures of speech. What we mean when we say that we believe in a literal interpretation of Scripture is that we recognize that the Bible does use figures of speech, but it is to communicate a literal message. That the point that it is getting across has literal meaning. And so actually when you look at this passage here, and you say, well, what is the literal meaning? The literal meaning is that you need Christ to have spiritual life. Just like you need food. That's the literal meaning. When we say that we believe the Bible literally, we're not saying that we don't understand that the Bible uses figurative language. You know what? We see it right in this passage. Stop and think for a moment. Some of the things that we've already read. In John chapter 6, and verse 4, he says, For this is the will of My Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. What does it mean to look on the Son? Can you do it? Can I do it? Yeah. Right, It's the same language that Jesus used with Nicodemus. Just as the Son of Man will be lifted up and everyone who looks on Him in faith and belief will be healed, will be saved. Can I look on Christ today? Yeah, I can. How? In, in faith. I'm glad I can because otherwise it looks like I would be missing out on salvation. Did it mean even in Jesus' day while He was on the earth that people would have to travel from different places to come and actually physically see Him in order to be saved? No. What does it mean to look on Him? Well, right after it says, and believes. And believes. It's clear. Also within this same passage, we find four different times, beginning in chapter 6, verse 35, it says that Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to Me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in Me shall never thirst. Whoever comes to Me. Is that a very literal? Like they actually had to travel. People would have to travel to go to where Christ was in order to be saved. Or could people hear about Him and believe in Him? Well, obviously that's the case, right? Jesus, in describing this, when He says, whoever looks upon Me, whoever comes to Me, they're figures of speech. I don't know how many times I've told people in exactly this language, I came to Christ when I was 20 years old. Well, what do I mean by that? He's not even on this earth in a physical way where I can actually go to Him. But what I mean by that is, I came to believe in Him. That's what I mean by that. And you see, we use that kind of language because that's exactly how Jesus used it in the Gospel of John. In fact, much of Jesus' teaching about Himself is using figurative language. If we stick just to the Gospel of John, we'll find many different examples. And in this chapter, in chapter 6, verse 48, and in many different places in chapter 6, He says, I am the bread of life. In chapter 8, verse 12, He says, I am the light of the world. In chapter 10, verse 7, He says, I am the door of the sheep. In chapter 10, verse 11, He says, I am the good shepherd. In chapter 11, verse 25, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. In chapter 14, verse 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in John chapter 15, and verse 5, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. 
You see, my point is this, is when you're trying to learn what an author is communicating, you look at the whole picture of their communication and you say, well, does he mean this literally or does he mean this figuratively? And one of the ways to know that is to say, well, does this person commonly use figures of speech to communicate a spiritual truth? And what we find is that Jesus regularly used figures of speech to communicate a spiritual truth. Nobody would say when Jesus says, I am the door, that you actually think He's a door or a shepherd or light or any of these things. But each of those things has its specific spiritual reality that they're pointing to. So when Jesus comes along, when He sits down to the disciples, when it actually does get to the Lord's Supper, and He takes the elements off the table and says, this is My body, none of them thought that was His body. When He said, when he grabs a glass of wine from off the table and says, this is My blood, none of them thought it was really His blood. Put yourself in that position. You wouldn't think it. But somehow when it gets to trying to understand the things of religion, all of a sudden we think that God is speaking in all these mysteries all the time. And He's not. So He regularly uses allegorical language and this should be taken just as more of that kind of language. Another part in this is what I would call the absurdity. I'm not saying it that way to be mean-spirited, but it's just that's the whole point. Is Usually when there's a statement, it seems kind of absurd to take it literally. That's good indication that it is meant to be taken figuratively. And that's what we see in this instance. In fact, they, they have some real struggle with that. When you look at the absurdity, there's uh, several things to factor in. Consider this. One is the, is the fact that Christ was physically present with them. He was in His body and His blood flowing through His veins at the moment that He told them this. And so He's obviously not telling them, eat My literal flesh and drink My blood. He's still walking around in those two things. Even at the time when He does institute the Lord's Supper, He's still in His body and in His blood. And so clearly He's not saying, this bread and this wine is My body and blood when His body and blood is still uh, sitting right in front of them. Not only that, but we also see that the Lord's Supper wasn't even instituted yet. You see, we tend to read things from our context a lot and we are used to the Lord's Supper. The apostles don't even have it. It's not until Jesus' last meal when He sits down with the disciples and He says, this is My body, this is My blood, that He actually institutes the Lord's Supper. So they didn't even have that to go with. There is no way that in their mind they were thinking of the Lord's Supper in this. And then also, when you look throughout Scripture, there were heavy, heavy commands against things like cannibalism, eating human flesh, against the eating and drinking of blood for the Jewish people, that would have just been an absurdity for them to uh, consider it in that way. And that, that's the whole point. Is it, That's just not what he means by this. Also, if we look within the passage, we're going to find the choice of words would indicate that he is not referring to the Lord's Supper. When you look at the word for flesh, he says, uh, my flesh is what I will give for the life of the world. It's a different word than is used in all the communion formulas that you find later. Any place in the Bible that you see the Lord's Supper being addressed and Jesus talking about the bread being His body, it used the word body. In the Greek language, it's a word soma. Flesh is the word sarx. Soma is the word body. And Jesus used the word flesh here. And in any other discussion where you are actually talking about the Lord's Supper, He always uses body. He never uses the word flesh. Not only that, but in the words eat and drink, the tense of these two verbs is in the aorist. Well, there's a couple different tenses that are past tense. We pretty much think of our, our language having a, a future tense, a past and present. Aorist would be a past tense. But there's another one also that is past tense, and that is the imperfect. And so when we look at those two tenses, it's an interesting distinction. In fact, I'll read to you from uh, 
press books, uh, ancient Greek for everyone. This is what they say about these tenses. The aorist tense always conveys a single discrete action. This is the most common tense for referring to action in the past. Now, notice the imperfect tense always conveys past activity that has more than a single action in some way. So, in other words, aorist is a past tense, completed action. It happened once and it's over. Imperfect is past tense, but it may have happened several times. By using the aorist tense of that verb, to eat, to drink, it's talking about a one-time event. In other words, it's talking not about a Lord's Supper that you would do over and over and over every month or every week. It kind of rules that out. Actually, what it's talking about is a moment that you put your faith in Christ. And that happens once. And so the tense or the word choice also points to the fact that this is not uh, referring to the Lord's Supper. The true bread. Remember the connection here. How did this all start? This started because Jesus fed them. And then He said, you know what? The reason you're coming to Me now is because you noticed something's missing and you tasted it when you ate that bread. And He tells them, don't focus on the things that are temporal. Focus on the eternal. And they said, what is the eternal? What are the works of God? It's to believe in Me. And they said, Moses gave us the bread in, in the wilderness. What do you have? And Jesus says, it wasn't Moses, but God the Father gave you manna in the wilderness. But I'm the true bread that came from heaven. The literal event of them eating manna in the wilderness was actually the allegory that pointed to the reality that's in Christ. That's the whole point that Christ is making in this whole thing is that He is the true bread coming from heaven. It's an analogy that points to believing. And then lastly, the nature of His words. Notice that there is a statement right within the passage that gives us some indication that He's using this in a spiritual sense, in a figurative sense. In John chapter 6 and verse 63, says it is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you, they are spirit and life. And so Christ, even in that, is saying, look, the words that I've spoken to you, they're, they're spiritual. The flesh isn't any help here. What is He encouraging them to do? It's not, to, it's not that the, the elements that we partake of are going to magically turn into the body and blood of Christ and we're literally going to physically eat them. It's that these represent something very important. They represent the sacrifice that Christ made on our behalf and it calls us to believe in Him. Now that brings us to our final point, which is a conclusion of John chapter 6. True disciples. He points out right at the very end, we get to see the mark of true disciples. And they come down to these two things, which actually it's kind of one thing. The mark of a true disciple, not the marks. Because belief in the person of Christ through the acceptance of the words of Christ. Jesus comes to them. The crowd, they listen to Jesus teach. And what is His teaching? Look, you don't get to heaven without Me. I'm the only way. You have to put your faith in Me. I am the living bread. And they won't swallow it. They won't take it. They turn around and they walk away. And Jesus looks at His disciples. And those people were offended. And Jesus says, are you, going to be, are you offended also? Are you going to walk away? And His disciples say, absolutely not. Why? Because you have the words of eternal life. We have come to know that you're the one. We believe in you. Notice the, the difference. The false disciples would gather to see the miracles, would gather to eat the bread. But when it came to the teaching of Christ, they got offended quickly and they left. What's the real difference between the false disciple and the true disciple? The true disciple hangs on his words. The true disciple doesn't take just the part of Christ that they like. You know, the same thing that happened in Christ's day happens in ours. I know I've met many people that claim to be disciples of Christ or following Christ that 
They just like the warm, fuzzy parts. They like the projects of feeding the poor, that kind of stuff. They like the benevolent things. They like talking about love and forgiveness. They talk about tolerance and patience. And they like the warm fuzzies, but they, eh, not the wrath, not the judgment, not the repentance, not identifying what sin is. You know, I remember being at a pastor's luncheon thing and there were several pastors around and I wasn't actually directly involved in the conversation. I was kind of talking to somebody else off to the side and I ended up by two pastors but they were talking about sin and judgment and the gospel and these things. The one must some red flag must have went up and he said, Well what about the wrath of God? And the other one responded, Well I just don't really I that's not really what I communicate to people and he said, Well well, what do you do when you're preaching through like John? And John gets the point and says the wrath of God abides on them unless they believe in Christ. Then what do you do about the wrath of God? And they, well, I guess I just wouldn't preach that passage. And the argument was, you can catch more, what's the saying? Is it bees? Catch more bees with honey? Flies? I don't know. If you want to catch flies or bees, you know the saying. But we're not trying to catch flies or bees. But the, the point was, you, you catch more people with uh, the sweet stuff than the vinegar, right? Than the sour stuff. And I thought, holy cow, you're talking about a pastor that is literally admitting, I'm going to take all the nice stuff about Christ and I'm going to ignore everything else. You know what? If you take all the nice stuff about Christ and you ignore everything else, you don't have Christ. You have your definition of Christ. You have some little figment of your own imagination that you fabricated out of some of these things that you see in Scripture. But you're not getting the whole deal. You're not getting the reality of who Christ is. You see, that's the problem that these false disciples had. These people were more than glad to come out for this religious experience, eat the bread, watch the miracles, even listen to Christ up to a certain point, but ah, no, we're not going there. They would not take Him for all of who He was. They would not listen to His words. They would not accept His words. John chapter 8, verse 43 says, Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear My word. Chapter 8, verse 47, Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. John eight fifty one. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps My word, he will never see death. John 12, verses 47 through 50, If anyone hears My words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects Me and does not receive My words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has Himself given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. And I know that His commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Jesus says, "If those who do not accept My Word has one that will judge them on that last day, even the Word that I said. So as we look at it here this morning, and we're participating in the Lord's Supper here in just a moment, what is it? Look, nothing mysterious is going to happen to the elements. When you stop and think about the miracles of Christ, what do they look like? You see a lame person be able to get up and carry his bed. You see people that were born blind be able to see everything clearly. People with leprosy instantly cleansed. Do they look like lepers anymore? No. In fact, Jesus would send them to the priest. If you thought you were cured of your leprosy, you are supposed to go to the priest. He was the authority. He's the only one that could release you back out into society. Jesus would send them to the priest. Go show them that your leprosy's gone. The whole community would recognize that a miracle has been done. You know, some would teach that the elements that are on the table before us this morning, well, they would tell you that it won't happen here because I'm not a qualified priest. 
has to be a qualified priest. But if they do it, then the elements actually change. But they will admit that if you actually take the elements and break the bread, pour out the wine, you will find no change. It still looks just like bread and wine. But it is no longer bread and wine. It is only the body and blood of Christ. Well, I would tell you this. If that miracle is really happening there at that time, it's the only miracle Christ ever did where you couldn't noticeably see the difference. The whole point of a sign was that it was very visible. So our point is here this morning. What was Jesus' point? His point was we need Him. What did He mean by eat my flesh and drink my blood? Just simply believe. Put your faith in Christ. That's what He meant. And so as we participate in the Lord's Supper here this morning, let this be a reflection of your belief. That's what's really happening here. And with it comes the constant encouragement from Scripture to examine ourselves. Are we true disciples? Are we in with Peter, James, John, those guys? That when Jesus said, are you going to walk away? We say, absolutely not. Why? Because we're not just here for your works. We're here for your words.